Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. Boy, I haven't been here in a few months, I think. We took a little break through the pandemic. Today is uh, June 29th, 2020. Wow, where has the time gone? Uh, well, that music is so refreshing <laughs> compared to the stuff I had up for years. Uh, I just wanted to get up and start dancing. Uh, today I'm really excited about the show that we're going to do with an anonymous pilot who wrote a book. And the book is called The Hymns Human Intervention Motivational Study, which is what the Hymns stands for. The Hymns Nightmare, A Pilot's Guide to Surviving Substance Abuse Re-Education by Randall Patrick McMurphy. So we're going to bring on um, Mr. Captain but uh, hold on one second before I bring you on. I just want to read a little bit about what this is. All right, so you can buy it. First of all, I'll tell you this more than once. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, you can buy it also on, just go to hymnsnightmare.com, H-I-M-S-N-I-G-H-T-M-A-R-E.com. All right, so here we go. Uh the Hymn's Nightmare is a practical guide to surviving the Human Intervention Motivation Study program for pilots who are in recovery from substance abuse or who are sucked into the program despite not being addicted to mood-altering substances. The Hymn's program is not what it is portrayed to be. Developed in 1974 as a means for returning substance abusers to the cockpit, Hymn's has grown to become a monster intended to put as many pilots as possible under the complete control of their employers who may have participants required FAA medical certificates revoked at any time for any reason. HIMSS relies almost entirely on outdated 12-step facilitation therapy, which in itself, which is itself based almost solely on the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was formed in 1935 and has changed little since. Although the rate of recovery for AA alone is abysmal, HIMSS claims high rates of recovery, which are in truth the result of participants who are threatened with loss of their careers and intrusion monitoring requirements, which may stretch in duration to include a pilot's entire career. 
yeah, I said it right, entire career, for the life of your flying, once you get involved in this. Pilots are typically thrust into the program with minimal information, at times of emotional vulnerability, as they contemplate losing their career and lifestyle. They are rarely apprised of their rights or of all the encompassing nature of a program which will ultimately control their lives. The HIMSS nightmare is intended to empower pilots to avoid the program if they can or to survive it if they must. It is the book I looked for but could not find when I was sucked into the HIMSS EF-5 tornado. Had it existed then, I never would have been forced into a program which routinely destroys careers and lives. Wow, that is fantastic. So I'm going to bring you on right now, and this is, um, here we go. We're going to call our pilot Captain A. Uh, Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Monica. I appreciate it. Uh, It is my pleasure. It has been really great getting to know you and the other pilots, and I loved reading the book. The book was a really easy read for a book like this. Sometimes you look at a book like this and you think, oh, this is going to be like a, you know, some kind of a manual type thing, and I just like flew through this. You did a really, really great job. Well, thank you. I kind of designed it to be the idiot's guide to surviving the HIMSS program. I didn't want to make it too, I guess, too involved in mental health requirements, although there are some. But uh, yeah. the basic idea is that you can quickly get the information you need to survive. Well, actually, as I put it, to avoid hymns if you can or survive it if you must. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like this. I just highlighted that, which is just the beginning of Chapter 2. Uh, where it says that my objective is to help you avoid it or survive it. Um, I am a testament to the fact that even the world's biggest non-Kool-Aid drinker can survive without sacrificing his soul, if not um, indefinitely, at least long enough to retire in reasonable comfort. So let's. I want to just go back a little bit. Maybe let's talk about you know when you were interested in flying. Like how young did you think about becoming a pilot? When did you first learn? And a little bit of your backstory. Well, I mean, in terms of backstory, I uh, started flying back when I was uh, in high school, and uh, I had a notion to go into uh, psychology. My major in, in college was psychobiology, to be in fact, in fact which uh, I guess leaves me well-suited to peruse some of the literature on psychological testing and substance abuse testing that the book involves. But uh, Uh I decided eventually that I was not well-suited to spend my life in a lab. And uh, I had uh, done a little flying on, a little traveling on what was then Antilles airboats uh, that was flying around the Caribbean in amphibious aircraft. I decided that Uh looked like a lot more fun than uh, spending my life in a lab. So I did that for a (laughs) living. (laughs) Wow. I I kind of figured it would be a... uh, No, straight civilian. Um, I starved as a flight instructor. And see, this is one of the things that that really gets the HIMSS victims. They spend decades starving their way up the ladder, building a career, building skills that don't necessarily translate well to other 
lines of work. You know, I mean, uh-huh. when you get pilot certificates, it does not suit you to become a business manager, for example. A lot of guys, when they lose their medical certificates due to HIMS, uh, the HIMSS program and the abuse of the HIMSS program, wind up working in places like Home Depot because, quite frankly, their certificates don't position them well for other careers. So um, the, the bottom line is that people, when they are faced with the HIMS program, typically they do something that gets them sucked into HIMS, and they are in a position of extreme vulnerability. Maybe they had a DUI. Uh, I'll talk later about some of the ways they can get into HIMS. But uh-huh. at that point of extreme vulnerability, they're contemplating the loss of this career that they took decades to build, the loss of their home, the loss potentially of their marriage, of their kids' college prospects. All of this is on the line. And at exactly this moment of maximum vulnerability, the hymns people step in and say, well, we can save your career. Just sign this hymns agreement. And once they sign it, their career is in the hands of, entirely in the hands of HIMSS bureaucrats, their airline, and that's very important. Your airline now controls your career. And so um, that is precisely why I, I wrote this book. So let's talk about maybe, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about here. Uh, there was some stuff that I was, like, really shocked, like, I even put like WTF on just this one <laughs> one thing here. Okay, like this is like the really beginning of the book. Understanding number four: anything anything you say can and will be used against you. That especially includes the things that you tell the nice psychiatrist who insists he is trying to help you, but will dutifully report your every utterance as evidence of your alcoholism or mental disorder. That nice psychiatrist Mm -hmm. is paid by your company. You are not the patient. You are not his patient. And he has no legal obligation to treat you, much less protect you or your most private secrets. Sorry, much less protect your most private secrets. And when I first read this, I thought maybe that's why when when I first would talk to the pilots, I would say, well, they can't do that. That's illegal. They're psychiatrists. And, And so I was confused. How about you talk about, like, that whole little thing there and how... Well. Understand that once something, once a pilot gets a diagnosis of substance, uh, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, essentially their FAA medical certificate, without which they cannot operate an airplane, becomes null and void. They are prohibited by Federal Aviation Regulation Part 67.107 from operating an aircraft with a medical certificate if they have that disqualifying condition. So, Essentially, they are forced now into the HIMSS program if they want to get their, their, be able to fly again. Uh, and as I say, they often don't realize what's involved. One of the first right. things they, that uh, is typically required is a substance abuse evaluation. Now, the book tells you exactly what this substance abuse evaluation will comprise. But the bottom line is that you will see a psychiatrist. This psychiatrist is not a treating physician. He is there to evaluate you. He is not retained by you. He is not treating you. It is strictly an evaluation. As such, you are forced to sign away consent to make sure that everything he comes up with can go to your company 
and other people in the HIMSS program. So the bottom line is this guy, no matter what he says, is not your friend, okay? He is there Uh strictly for the purpose of evaluating whether or not you have alcohol use disorder, whether or not uh, your medical will be essentially null and void. Um, And oftentimes, (laughs) I hate to say this, but oftentimes the psychiatrist who is retained by your company will actually gin up a diagnosis uh, to support what he is told to come up with. And there have actually been cases where uh, one psychiatrist in particular who will remain nameless uh, was paid, I believe it was $76,000 to diagnose uh, an individual who worked for another for an airline with bipolar disorder by the airline. So quite often these HIMSS psychiatrists will actually validate preordained conclusions or preordained, uh, uh, I guess, diagnoses that are set by mm-hmm. the airline itself. Oh, my God. All right. I heard, too, that <laughs> when pilots are new now and you, they go for their, like, training where, you know, you sit in a room where they talk about, you know, it's more of a talking training. They get hired by American or United. That there's a hymns guy who comes in there, like, from the very beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? Like, oh, yeah. Set it up Absolutely. like, you know. Little AA guy, AA hymns guy. So, uh, well, they, uh, that's true. I, I have I have come to call these people the Juden rats of the hymns program. If anybody doesn't recognize that phrase, those were the uh, Jewish people in World War II who were Nazi collaborators and sold out their own people. Um, I, I refer to the Union people who are the hymns representatives that way because, quite frankly, frankly, as you put it, often they are steppers. They are AA cultists uh, for whom their objective is to suck you into AA and into this program. Uh, They're out to help you whether you want that help or not. And so uh, many times, be it Project Wingman or whatever your your company calls this program, they make a rosy, uh, you know, presentation that makes it look like you can call us, we're your friend. But once you call them, Okay, and once you confess that uh, that maybe you have a substance abuse problem, or maybe you're concerned about that you might have a substance abuse problem, I can assure you that the answer will be yes, you do, and they will suck you into the Hymns program in a heartbeat. Which is why one of the things that I recommend. I mean, I've I've seen I've gotten some criticism on this. I've had people say, "Well, you're an advocate. You're basically uh, enabling people to fly while intoxicated." No, I'm not. All right. And you're advocating people that people don't get help for substance abuse problems. No, that's not what we're saying at all. The point is this. Okay. If it were me and I were doing it all over again, I would look for help. Okay. If I needed help from somebody who had never heard of the FAA, because the bottom line is, as it's been explained to me by one of the HIMSS independent medical sponsors or IMSs, What makes the difference is whether or not you have been diagnosed with alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. If that diagnosis hasn't been made, you may not be under any obligation to report it to the FAA, and you may be able to seek your own treatment apart from the HIMSS program. Yeah, we know one pilot who has really fought it. Um, We don't know if we've... 
this person, I will leave out the gender, um, but if the person is going to manage to get back to work, right? I mean, this is the thing. So mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. so many, there's pitfalls, right? So I know you wrote this, uh, and it is really, really helpful to uh, for anybody, whether they've already you know, did it and now they're kind of stuck. Let's start with that already. Let's start with the guy or the gal who um, kind of have, has fallen for it, um, and what, what can they do? If the person's already said, oh, yeah, yeah I would really yeah. like to cut back or quit or whatever, what, what, what would you say to them? Yeah. You, uh, let me tell you something. You have hit exactly the right topic because the number of ways that people, you know, everybody goes, well, obviously this pilot must be a drunk if he's in the HIMSS program, right? No, there are a lot of people in there that don't have substance abuse problems. There are people right. who get sucked into the HIMSS program in any variety of ways. As I said, the reason that the airlines want to suck as many people into HIMSS as possible is that essentially what they get for the $100,000 that they might spend on rehabilitation for one of these pilots, what they get in return is a pilot they completely control, a pilot who they can have their medical certificate pulled at any time for any reason. And so consequently, Mm -hmm. what they get is by complete control over this is they get a pilot who is forced, and oftentimes, by the way, it it circumvents uh, contractual working agreements, uh, union contracts, all sorts of things. So what they get out of this is a pilot who has to say yes to whatever the company wants. If they say, you know, well, we think that, uh, that you should uh, push back without all these connecting passengers, uh, you know, and to hell with them. Uh, the pilot either says yes or else the chief pilot says, you know, we think you might have an anger management problem. Maybe you should come in and we'll evaluate you. And if they decide you have an anger management problem, you know, they might actually have your medical certificate pulled. Okay. Well. The point is, toe the line or else or else we end your career. I mean, I've known people that get sucked into the program on decades-old DUIs or refusing a field sobriety test during a motor vehicle stop or reports by vengeful ex-spouses. That's a popular one. Uh, Reports by spiteful co-workers, okay? Reports by Mm -hmm. pilots that they had been drugged and sexually assaulted, okay? Mentioning alcohol consumption to doctors while being treated for other conditions. And, of course, the ever-popular self-reporting by pilots who had absolutely no idea what they were getting themselves into. Okay? So the point is, there are people that get sucked into hymns that don't need to be in a substance abuse program. Lots of them. And the single worst thing you can do once you get sucked into hymns is to say, I'm not an alcoholic. I knew one individual who said that because he had, uh, I believe he was tagged due to uh, refusing a sobriety test during a motor vehicle stop, which is disqualifying Uh for your medical, by the way. And uh, so he said, well, I did this, but I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, uh, normally it takes about maybe nine, a minimum of nine months to get your FAA medical certificate back once you get into HIMSS. Uh, He was uh, two years and still working on it and still didn't have a medical certificate because the bottom line is if you don't fess up to whatever it is they want you to fess up to, unless you uh, give them the the gratitude, the humility, and the serenity and the acceptance that they want, they won't give your medical back. So, 
Um, I, well, I'm not really well, sure. Did that, did that answer your question? I, I forgot what the original yeah. question was now that yeah. I got off the topic. No, yes. What, what, what it was, if someone, let's start with someone who's already kind of naively fell into this in all the ways that you just described. So that was perfect. And that's going to lead me to Chapter 9 about lawyering up, right? And there's <laughs> a bunch of questions. I'll pop out a few things, and then we're going to just go for it. So what constitutes discrimination? I loved this stuff that, you know, you kind of educated myself. Um, I was like, how do we get them? You know, how do we get them? Because it's kind of a big web. It felt like a big ball, like this big ball with, like, Mm -hmm. different pieces of pie. And they were connected, yet there's a big game being played. So let's let's say one piece of the pie is the airlines itself. So we'll say, you know, say it was United Airlines, and then you have the FAA, and then you have the union, and there's two unions, right? There's not just mm-hmm. one. And Alpha. Yeah, there and, are, yes. Predominant, two predominant okay. unions. So you have the yes. union, mm-hmm. you have your company, you have the FAA, and you have the guys who you get your medicals from. And who else? Is that it? And then you have the HIMSS program. Uh, in terms, okay, you have the HIMSS program. In, in terms right? of who constitutes the HIMSS, basically, in him's no, 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 but I mean, by... just the kind of web, okay. like how do you, like how it's interwoven and who forces you there, oh, yeah. right? I was trying to figure oh, out yeah. who forces okay. you there, so that who do I fight as like Monica here, the activist who's like really pissed off about this when I found it out. So <laughs> talk about what each of one of those, do, like what they all do, who forces you there, but you can start with what's really sim- more simple than that, which is. Should you lawyer up? And then the okay. next one is discrimination. So let's. How about we start with discrimination? Like what? Okay, those are those are actually related questions. And those are related questions. And the first thing I will say is I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV. Okay. Yeah. So this is not <laughs> legal advice. Right. That said, okay, alcoholics and substance abusers may, under some circumstances, be protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. You may have a disability. Now, that's the good news. The good news is, rather, that you may be subject to the protections of the ADA. The bad news is it normally takes quite a bit to establish that. Uh, everybody, you know, contacts me and says, well, I want to sue them for what? Okay. The bottom line is, although you could sue anybody for anything in the United States, the reality is that in most cases it will be dismissed immediately. And most, mm-hmm. most lawyers won't bring frivolous suits because, quite frankly, their law license is on the line. So mm-hmm. if you are going to sue under the ADA, my first recommendation to anybody, matter of fact, this is a general recommendation, keep copious records. Keep records of everything. If you happen to live in a state which is what they call a one-party consent state, meaning only one party to a conversation has to consent to a conversation be being recorded, you might consider recording all of the telephone calls. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, bear in mind that the company you work for may prohibit that recording, so it may or may not be permissible under your company guidelines. But right. you keep those records because if you have to sue under the ADA, you cannot just file a lawsuit. Okay. First, you must file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Then they will give you an intake interview. The intake interview is not to examine the merits of your complaint. It is solely to determine whether your complaint is covered by the ADA. And by the way, 
religion being forced on non-religious people is also a valid ADA complaint, just FYI. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> you have your EEOC intake interview. They, uh, they give you a, uh, an ex- they assign an examiner, who, by the way, is not your friend, okay? Uh, his, yeah. uh, his, his purpose yeah. is to exonerate your company from any wrongdoing, if you will. And so uh, the EEOC examiner will then begin to examine your uh, case, uh, and after you have submitted a well-documented and well-written complaint, uh, the company will get an opportunity to respond and will doubtless slander you because that's what large corporations do. But nonetheless, um, you must first get a right to sue letter from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in order to file litigation under the ADA. And by the way, once you get that right to sue letter, uh, you have 45 days, I believe it is, to actually file the litigation, so be sure you're ready. Essentially, what you have to do is you have to find some, you have to find some example where they either discriminated against you under the ADA as an alcoholic, or if they retaliated against you for complaining about a potential act of discrimination. Either of those things will qualify you for an ADA complaint. You have 180 days between the occurrence of that event and the maximum time under which you may file an EEOC complaint. So it's fairly complicated, which is why I laid it out in, in great length, you know, on Chapter 9 of the book. And the bottom line is this, okay? If you decide to do this, it will not be an easy matter, okay? Everybody will consider you an outlier. Everybody will consider you a malcontent. Your own friends will tell you that you don't have a chance in hell. Your family well, may say, are you really, are you, do you really think this is worth it? And you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Because I can assure you it is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it isn't. I mean, it wasn't easy to take on AA either. You know, people were like, oh, you can't do anything, you can't change anything, and blah, blah, blah. You know, the naysayers mm-hmm. are there. But that's why you wrote this book, and now it's the first of its kind. Again, if you're out there listening and you just tuned in, uh, we well, you can get the book at uh, Amazon and also on the website itself, which is thehymnsnightmare.com, right? The uh, and by the uh, way, I should point out on the nightmare we ha- on the uh, hymnsnightmare.com, I have a link to Amazon that helps you find the book easier, and there are now both printed and Kindle editions of the book available. Great, great, yeah, it's uh, it definitely needs to get out there. All right, so. Let's go to um, the five steps of pursuing action against your employer. So this is one way you could do it. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, does selective um, bargaining apply? You know, I mean, that's a question. Like, I would think, you know, I don't even know that answer, but you probably do. So does collective bargaining apply here? Well, it, it could, uh, or it, maybe it doesn't. Um, the answer is kind of unique. And uh, this is one of the things that we've discovered looking at class action litigation. Different airlines have different HIMSS programs. Although HIMSS is a generalized uh, umbrella, if you will, FAA, uh, airlines certificate individual programs with the FAA. They have commonalities, but, and I can discuss some of the commonalities, but the bottom line is that each is different. 
Similarly, uh, if you have a union contract as an airline pilot, your union contract might cover HIMSS or it might not, or it might cover certain aspects of the HIMSS program, for example, payroll, but not other aspects. So right. if the collective bargaining of, uh, agreement applies, you may have tr- more trouble, and I'm not saying it's impossible, but you may have more trouble getting the EEOC to handle your complaint because they'll look at it and say, well, that's subject to collective bargaining and, and arbitration, so go talk to them. We don't want to talk to you. Um, yeah, so, so, so read a line. It's, it's, it's a complicated issue. It really is. Right, right, and I, I, I kind of learned that, you know, as each, each airline could be different, but it says, here, he wrote this here, as I began the process of pursuing action against my employer, I was at first disgusted by the fact that my union contract didn't protect me. Um, when I mm-hmm. later spoke to him, victims from other airlines, however, I began to regard it as a blessing rather than a curse. Even when the CBA mm-hmm. applies, union representatives are generally loath to defend drunks, in quotes, whom they regard as the cause of their own misfortune. Wow. That's, That's exactly really right. Um, yeah. You, you, you really aren't I, – I spoke to a, uh, a pilot recently who is in the HIMSS program and got what is apparently becoming increasingly common, a false positive on a PET test, which is a test for long-term biomarkers of alcohol in the bloodstream. Uh, it seems perhaps that maybe – the use of hand sanitizers during the pandemic may be causing yeah. some of these false positives on pest, pest tests. But in any case, um, I, I said uh, the first question I always ask anybody under a circumstance like that is, do you have a lawyer? Well, yeah, I'm letting the union lawyer handle it. No, 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 no. The union lawyer is not your lawyer. He will advocate for you, but he's the union's lawyer. And as I said in the book, the bottom line is that many, if not most of these people, regard anybody in the HIMSS program as a drunk, somebody who, as you, quite, as, as you quoted from the book, is the cause of their own mal, you know, misfortune. And so right. they don't advocate for you particularly strongly. And so I tell people, get your own lawyer. It may cause you just a consultation might cause you, cost you 300 bucks. It might cost you 500 bucks, but I can assure you it's money well spent when compared to yeah. what you will earn or not earn for the rest of your career. Yeah, you know, I think it's it, it was really a hard sell even to get a journalist to that they did tell one story. There was one pilot story that got done by Gabrielle Glaser. Was it a doctor? No, no, she did a doctor. They agreed. Uh, I forget, I think it was the New York Times for this piece. But, you know, the story of Scott, who I think you know Scott um, in um, Washington State, who was actually sent, so he self-reported just saying, you know, I would like some help. And uh, he went, Mm -hmm. he was forced to go to a rehab. He was 14 months sober, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, people thought he was a counselor when he showed up. So it's like Mm -hmm. really, really crazy. Um, okay, so let's go to down to the next one. It says, filing an HR complaint. Presuming the issue isn't covered by collective bargaining, your first step is to make a complaint to your human relations, your HR department. Let's talk about this. Yep. Well, as Consult- I said, what you a don't want to first. do is you... Yep. So basically, yeah, you're going to start out, let's say you have a someone did something that you feel is discriminatory based on the fact that you are enrolled in the HIMSS program. Okay, and you feel you are uh, 
therefore covered by the ADA and you're interested in making an ADA complaint, the first thing you do is you make a complaint to your HR department. Make this complaint in all of the ways that they, they tell you to do this. Do not give them any excuse to ignore your complaint or to tell you that it wasn't filed properly. Do not look like a malcontent. If you look like a malcontent and, you know, and, and simply a whiner, I can assure you that, uh, that you will be treated as a malcontent. So the bottom line is, uh, and I put a series of guidelines on there on how to file an effective HR complaint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Only once you have filed the HR complaint may you then file the EEOC complaint, although they can be done concurrently in some cases. But um, the bottom line is, yeah, filing the HR complaint is your first step down the road to filing a lawsuit against your company. Yeah, You know, I think this is really some good advice. I'm going to just, uh, you know, pick little lines out of here. Don't whine. Just because you don't like something doesn't make it actionable. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that your supervisor is being mean to you. Personal attacks or worse, obscenities will fail. Your complaint must allege specific, objectively actionable offenses which involve materially adverse actions as described above. Do your research. All right, so then, uh, you know, um, start by looking at other cases, uh, resources from the EEOC and elsewhere. Gather documentation. And, you know, I think that this is really important and um the guy who if you're listening out there i did a show a, a few years back where barry hazel won it took seven years 1.9 million dollars um he was caught doing a small amount i mean really small amount of drugs and they were forced him to an AA rehab he sued the state the parole officer and the rehab and he won but what he said made him win is that he wouldn't buy into it. He agreed that he would go back to jail, which I think he went back for 90 days or something like that. He had a yellow pad, right, nice big yellow pad, and wrote down everything from beginning to end. And he said that writing of every detail, as our Captain A here is saying, the author of this book, you will need phone logs, emails, voicemails, letters, recordings of calls, meetings, if legal, and most of all, the timeline of events, right? And then, mm-hmm. you know, the other one is be concise. Nothing will make you look more like a nutcase or nutcase more than a 12-page rambling dissertation. And I have seen this with other stories when I was first working on my film, that if you can, people can get to, to the point, um, it's hard to do maybe the first time. Maybe this is the first time somebody's listening to you. But this is really, really good advice is just keep it, you know, really structured and just get to the point. Um, let's see. Uh, was it following HR procedures? Read your employee handbook, right? Um, prepare to be questioned. Follows the what ifs, right? Um, uh, document how HR deals with your complaints. Like this is like now you're going to keep track of how you're being treated and what's going on after you file the complaint. Um, don't necessarily discuss it with your chief pilot. Oh, my God, yeah, because he could be a stepper. <laughs> or he's with the stepper guy, and he's saying the serenity prayer as you're taking off, right? Yep. I mean, the first thing, you know, you're going to get is, well, you know, you need to address this to your chief pilot. Well, not necessarily, okay? Um, there are cases where you might, but there are plenty of cases where you will not you may find that your chief pilot is actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. 
Okay, your immediate supervisor, you know, may or may not be supportive under these cases. So yes, that's uh, that's definitely part of the advice. Okay, here's another one. Large companies typically use an online portal to file complaints. I also recommend sending a certified letter to corporate officers who are directly responsible for such complaints. Your goal is to stand out from the herd as a serious person on a serious business, not a lightweight. Okay, and then Bingo. the filing of and- Yep. Mm-hmm. Let me let me interject here. One of the advantages that I had in all of this that the company is not prepared for, that that very few people are prepared for, is a history of doing political action. Okay, uh, of running political nonprofits, of doing political writing. One of the things that uh, you do as a political activist is to convince your target. Okay, be that target a politician or a corporation, that you are a serious person on serious business and that you will not go away until you get what you want. That is precisely what I am trying to convey uh, in, that, in the point you just made. Hmm. Wow. You could write another book. <laughs> have, have you written I plan one to, about actually. <laughs> Do you have oh, one already for like a book? <laughs> Yeah, you ought to because we, uh, there, we have some people there's, that are. There's I think one that's in the works right now, but yes, ultimately okay. I would, I plan to do exactly that. Yeah, I'll because, let you know. <laughs> okay, let me know because uh, I could use one. Um, I could use help in that department. It took me long to figure certain <laughs> things out. Uh, you know, when you look at um, not other nonprofits that have been successful, right? And then what did they do? But you kind of need to talk to the people that started them mm-hmm. and who are running them with that information. Okay, so let's go back. Let's continue here. The um, the EEO. The EEOC complaint um, mm-hmm. enforces federal laws against discrimination due to an employee or a job applicant's race, color, religion, or lack thereof, sex, including pregnancy, gender identity, sexual orientation, national origin, let's see, age 40 or over, disability, or genetic information. It is also illegal for an employer to retaliate for complaining about discrimination, filing a charge of discrimination or participating mm-hmm. in an investigation or lawsuit. Did this happen to you? Well, I can't discuss my case specifically uh, okay. by, by, my lawyer's, by my lawyer's requirement, but I will give a hypothetical. Let us say hypothetically okay. that one makes an ADA complaint. Then let us say hypothetically, because uh, they can do this in HIMSS program, you get a phone call that says, um, you know, we think you're having anger issues. We need to remove you from the line pending further evaluation. And uh, they proceed to send you through a series of events uh, which uh, ultimately result in the loss of pay, uh, what they call a materially adverse action, okay? Something that costs right. you pay, your career, your job, whatever it happens to be, okay? Now, <clears throat> Here's, a, here's an interesting point, an interesting little, um, I guess, wrinkle. If the EEOC were to derm- determine that your original discrimination complaint was not warranted, that it wasn't necessarily valued, valid, but you made that in good faith, okay, you did make it in good faith, it is, the retaliation for that original event remains actionable under the ADA, even though the original complaint itself might not be in violation of the law. So, in other words, if they retaliate against you, you can go after them whether or not your original complaint was valid, providing you did so in good faith. Okay. 
Now, here's the the one that um, if you are going the route of saying, I'm going to use the um, Disabilities Act, right? That, okay, say your guy mm-hmm. who really did have a drinking problem. Let's go with the guy who really was drinking too much, and it was really a problem, okay? He's got to put a little in his coffee in the morning to get rid of the shakes and is waiting for lunch or whatever he's doing, hiding bottles. And he goes, but he's shocked by what he sees, and he's going to use the Disability Act. Can you, you know, help us explain that a little bit, if that's if you're one of those guys? Well, like, what's the best route with the, that one? The bottom line is nothing, yeah, that's a good point. Nothing under the EEOC allows you to continue abusing alcohol or drugs, okay? Uh, the bottom line is it covers recovering substance abusers, and the emphasis here is on recovering. It requires your, the, your employer to give you a reasonable accommodation to deal with uh, your substance abuse issue. If, for example, you say, uh, I have to go to an AA meeting, and they say, uh, you know, well, you can't go to the AA meetings because for the following reason, and they don't give you a reasonable accommodation to go or a reasonable accommodation to go to rehab for 28 days or whatever it happens to be, those things may be actionable because if you are in recovery, then you may be covered under the ADA, and then they may be required to give you reasonable accommodation. Uh, if you are still drinking or still abusing drugs, then no, nothing protects you, quite frankly. So, what, and also, everybody has to be abstinent completely, like forever, right? Correct. Like, yeah, that, well, and, under and the, that, uh, I, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, maybe I, I should give people an idea of what's involved in the HIMSS program, okay? Because yeah, you yeah, will talk about the HIMSS Let's talk about what happens when you get sucked into HIMSS for whatever reason, okay? As I said, once Mm -hmm. you get a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, and by the way, sometimes some airlines have even bypassed that. They haven't even properly diagnosed somebody, and they still shunt them into the HIMSS program improperly. I've heard of that happening more than once. But once you get in there, it starts with 28 days in rehab. Okay, anybody who wants to know what that's like, uh, go uh, look up the old Sandra Bullock movie, 28 Days. Okay, and by the way, 28 is the minimum. It may be considerably longer than that, and it could be extended by your counselors once you are in rehab. I know two pilots who got their little stay extended for another 30 days or so. So you could wind up, you know, 60 days in rehab with no contact with the outer world, no cell phone. Uh, no access to your own computer. You may eventually get limited access to a computer in the group room. Um, and these people are controlling your every moment of your life while you're in rehab. Uh, once you get out of rehab, you will do 90 AA meetings in 90 days. That is non-negotiable. And by the way, they may pay lip service to smart recovery or secular programs because we both know that AA is a religious cult. But the bottom line is that you're still going to be required to satisfy AA requirements one way or the other. They're going to want you to get a sponsor, and they're going to want you to start working the steps. Uh, You're going to have monthly meetings with your chief pilot, HIMSS personnel, perhaps your employee assistance program or EAP personnel, and your union or peer representatives. You're going to have a weekly check-in with your peer representative. You're going to have regular monitoring Uh, for substance use via, typically they'll start with a remote breathalyzer called a Soberlink, and uh, you will breathe into that Soberlink, which, by the way, takes your picture and can't be fooled. Uh, You're going to blow into that Soberlink every four hours of your waking existence. Wow. Okay, think about that. All right. Um, 
that may uh, may be uh, relaxed later to being randomly substance tested every 14 times per year. So that's the long-term version of that. Uh, you're going to be required to go to intensive outpatient therapy, typically five days a week, uh, three, four hours a day for at least a couple of weeks, after which you will then be required to go to group therapy four times per month. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're starting to see that this actually, you know, I, I was told that, oh, this is going to be easy. There's nothing easy uh-huh. about it. This thing eats uh-huh. your life. Uh-huh. And when you are. Yeah, what if you have a family? What if you have a wife and children and uh-huh. like you had some other kind of hobby? Uh, like, that's right. Uh, you are going to be told that to prioritize your recovery and the HIMSS program, not only over your hobbies or your personal interests, but over your family your wife, your children, your parents. Under some circumstances, people are being told that they need to divorce their spouses because they're hindering their recovery. Think about that for a moment. The bottom line is that this thing will control every facet of your life. And it used to be, they, initially, the hymns advocates, when they suck people into the program, would lie to them by saying, ah, don't worry, you'll only be under three years monitoring. Well, even uh-huh. then... Three years monitoring never occurred. It was actually always a minimum of five years monitoring. But now the FAA has announced that they are going to lifetime monitoring for all HIMSS participants that are operating on what are called special issuance medical certificates, okay, which is required to get your medical back. You get an SI. And so anybody who's operating under an SI was always required to have monitoring, but now you will be operating under, under monitoring for the remainder of your career. So this is the gift that keeps on giving forever Yikes. for as long Yikes. as you continue to fly. Wow. And it's important to like, know that, that being abstinent is not enough for the HIMSS program. Okay, you could be abstinent from all mood-altering substances and still get lose your career, your medical, and everything else because you are expected to be humble, grateful, serene, and accepting meaning, accepting meaning, accept whatever they decide to do to you without complaint. If you complaint, if you complain rather, let's say you're complaining to your independent medical sponsor, on a, you know, that works for the company or is contracted by the company uh, by phone, and uh, you're complaining and they're making all the sympathetic noises. We understand how you feel. Well, I can assure you, at the other end of the phone line. The, the voice making sympathetic noises is also writing case notes about you, which are entirely uncomplimentary and may get your career ended. Okay. So the bottom line is if you are in the homes, hymns program, don't make waves. Wow. That's, you know, this is why my like blood would boil when I would hear these stories that it wasn't just, it was kind of too when I would fight with steppers, you know, pro AA people in uh, social media groups mm-hmm. or on blogs, that they were like, oh, well, you know, we don't want a drunk pilot. I said, no, no, we're not talking about a drunk pilot. The pilots are, are sober. Um, the pilots are abstinent. What we're talking about, it isn't good enough to just be that. They, you have to talk this talk. You have to be a cult, brainwashed member speaking to speak. Thanks. Or you will get called out, and I want to bring up one other professional that's involved in this. So anyone listening out there, those psychiatrists, so you are also sent to a psychiatrist who may have a long-term sobriety. They are fucking steppers, 
with 25 <laughs> or 30 years. They might charge you 1200 or 2500 I've been told, up to those amounts. You have to get yourself there. You have to fly to that state, whether it's Colorado or wherever else they are. And I have been told by pilots that they have asked them, like, what was something about, like, their fourth or fifth step or it's like, it's like like, this is a real thing, like like the AA 12 steps from the 30s, which AA members in the regular world think are these little benign groups, have no idea that nurses, doctors, and pilots are forced to go either for five years, and now we know pilots are for the life of your career, that you have to go to so many meetings that normal AA members don't even go to. And that's what I find so outrageous. It's so outrageous. Yeah, they they say that uh, you, they tell you that uh, your recovery is a full time career. Well, add in yet another full time career, and that one is convincing other people, namely in the Hims program, that you are recovering. And as far as the substance abuse professional goes, I'm going to tell you something. The most dangerous substance abuse professional you can encounter is one who is himself or herself in recovery. So, yep. Um, yeah, because they're you know <laughs> it, they have to be they're like evangelists or whatever. But uh, um, all right, let's see what uh, get, let's get a person. What about discrimination? Did we cover that? The discrimination was yeah. We did that in the beginning. It just like popped out to me again. All right, so say you're someone who does it, who's not into it right away. You see it's bullshit. You see, oh, my God, this is AA. Like, they actually might know about it, like what AA is, and, like, holy crap, uh, I, I can't go down this road. What do you say to that? Now, uh, let me ask you a question, okay? At what point is uh, this person making this, uh, this epiphany? Have they been diagnosed with alcohol use disorder yet? No. Or is, uh, is this they, had one extra drink and they were driving along a rural road and um, they got pulled over and they, uh, you know, they take a test or they actually are a little inebriated, can't hide it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm sorry, like, I just, you know, I'm, I'm getting divorced, my life is going to crap and I'm having a bad night and uh, there we go. Yeah. Well, I mean, if somebody gets a DUI, essentially, if you are under 0.15, uh, blood alcohol concentration, you may not, you, you probably won't be required to participate in hymns if it's once. Between 0.15 and 0.20, they will give you a substance abuse evaluation and you may or may not be required to participate in hymns, but uh, just from my experience with the program, probably you will. Over 0.20, it's for sure guaranteed. So the bottom line, once you, if you've got something like that and you've got you know, an FAA action underway to suspend your medical certificate, then essentially you have no choice but to recertify one way or the other. Now, the airlines want you to use their HIMSS program because, quite frankly, it gives them better control over you. In theory, it is possible to hire your own independent medical sponsor and do the certification process yourself. I had one guy who kind of goes, well, why can't I just go do it myself under... 67.107, 67.107, FAR 67.107, it says that if I'm free of substance abuse, substances for two years, I can get my medical back. Well, it's not quite that simple. That independent medical sponsor is effectively going to put you through a program very much like HIMSS. Okay, it actually right. will be a HIMSS program, and it just won't be associated with the airline-sponsored 
Hymns program. So if AA is not for you, you know, you can make a point for smart recovery and some of these other things. But uh, in, in most cases, from what I can see, they only pay lip service to those. And so it would be very difficult to recertify without using something like AA or another 12-step facilitation program, which is ultimately based on AA. Um, I would like to phase out the HIMSS program, get rid of it, you know, and destroy it. No, I would destroy it, but you just say phase it out and get rid of it. Um, what do you think is the possibility to to change this whole system? Well, I mean, the bottom the, the the bottom line is some type of system needs to be in place for someone who is a chronic, you know, has a substance use disorder, who is addicted to alcohol or other mood altering drugs, and you know has an FAA medical certificate. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not some reason to do something. What I'm saying uh-huh. is that this program has been co-opted by the airlines to do something it was never intended to do. Uh, so uh-huh. my, my feeling would be that, uh, that, one, if you want to reform the HIMSS program, your supervisor should have no bearing on your treatment in the program. The bottom line is they don't have any qualifications on substance abuse treatment, uh, and oftentimes they have conflicts of very large conflicts of interest. Okay, they uh-huh. should have an input into the program, but it should the decisions should not be made in any way, shape, or form by a supervisory pilot. Um, the other thing, yeah, that that's, be that's really pretty strange. Yeah, yeah they got to get rid of the AA as a requirement. Okay, the bottom line is that if you look at Dr. Lance Dotus, uh, and I relied heavily on his book, and I've spoken to the man. Uh, he, uh-huh. He's a, a a uh, highly renowned substance abuse professional has worked for has been at Harvard University, Boston University, and a variety of others. And he wrote a book uh, called uh, The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Facilitation. And the point he makes is that AA's recovery rate by itself is abysmal. It's on the order of 5 to 10%. Now, the HIMSS programs will claim a very high rate of recovery, uh, you know, they don't, they, I've never seen any verification for their claims, but they claim a high rate of recovery. And it's probably true, but as DOTUS documents, the reason for that is called compliance bias. The fact is, airline pilots are intelligent, motivated people who have dedicated a great deal of their lives to getting where they are. And so if you tell them you must not drink, they're not going to drink. It has nothing to do with AA or anything else. The bottom line is they're going to comply with whatever it takes. And so that's the reason that HIMSS, quote, works, if you will, end quote, okay, for those who are in the HIMSS program. But once they are out of the HIMSS program, what you find is that, uh, that oftentimes they go right back to drinking again because, quite frankly, there's no longer any motivation for remaining abstinent. So it's, you know, uh, people talk about, and plus, also, we should also note that as David Sinclair notes in the Sinclair method, um, the bottom line is that abstinence actually creates a greater tendency to overuse a substance, okay, after you return to using it. So the bottom line is the AA steppers and the, um, uh, the rehab people are fond of saying that while you're in recovery, your, uh, your addiction is doing push-ups. Okay, what they don't say is that they are acting as physical trainers for the disease by actually promoting the fact that if you come out of the program, you are more likely to relapse and more likely to use 
substances even more than you did to begin with. Yeah, it's it's really a bad bad picture. We have about five minutes to wrap it up, so I want to I want to end on um, or finish up on suing the bastards. So step four is sue the bastards <laughs> with either a right to sue letter or a dismissal and notice of rights in hand. You have only ninety days to mm-hmm. file a lawsuit. If you have not already done so, immediately contact a lawyer experienced in employment law and begin negotiations or litigation. Given that legal fees often start at around 300 per hour, it could be tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you know, finding a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. I just want to say this to listeners. So there's a group of pilots, and we've all come together and brought them together, and a lawyer that has been helping um, us and all of us to find uh, lawyers to help with a class action or individual uh, actions. Mm-hmm. So the pilots are no longer alone and we are working in a private group. Um, it's pretty hard to get into. So, uh, what are your final, your final things you want to say here to the listener? Well, well, for, first off, if somebody's got a question, my uh, my recommendation to them is send it to me via email at Captain A. Spell out Captain C A P T A I N. Captain A like Apple at himsnightmare.com. Captain A at himsnightmare.com. And I will try to answer questions that people have or direct them to others who can answer the questions. Once again, I do not say I'm a substance abuse professional, and I do not say I'm a lawyer. So what I am giving are generalities, not specific advice. And so, uh, but the bottom line is that what pilots need to understand is that the HIMS program is designed to keep them alone and isolated, feeling they are dependent on HIMS for their careers and their livelihoods, their marriage, and everything else. What we are there to tell them is that you are not alone in this process. There are people mm-hmm. who are in exactly the same circumstance, and if you seek us out, we will help you. Yes, and on that note, I've actually watched this work um, over the years as we've come together that watch one pilot help another. Usually it's more than one pilot will help. It'll be like two or three. Your guy's advice will help the other person. And I just want to do one more little promo for your book. Um, you can buy this book at the website himsnightmare.com. H-I-M-S nightmare.com and then also there's a link that will take you straight to Amazon as well and the book is selling for Kindle is sixteen ninety five, paperback sixteen ninety five with Prime and I've read it and it was really easy to read and I'm not a pilot or a lawyer or a psychiatrist <laughs> but, <laughs> you know it was it's really, really good talking with you. It's been months. And I thought I was going to do a bunch of podcasts during this lockdown thingy, but I I didn't do it. But uh, I want to thank you so much for writing the book, and uh, maybe we'll have you on again. We can do another show. Well, Monica, uh, I thank you. It has been I thank you for the opportunity, and it's been a pleasure. I can assure you. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everybody. See you next time on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.